Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryermuth. And I'm Kat McCain. Today we are talking about environmental justice with Maria Wagner, Senior Economic Policy Advisor at USACE Headquarters, and Jessica Ludi, the Risk Program Manager at the San Francisco District before we get into the topic, let's get to know our guests. Maria, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Maria Wagner, and I started in the Corps of Engineers in the Tulsa District as an economist, uh, actually as a student by happenstance. Um, one of my sociology adjunct professors was working at the Corps of Engineers and brought me on board to work on economics as a student, even though my background is really environmental policy. And from there, I stuck with the course. I thought, you know, this is a real chance to make a difference in people's lives, really dealing with flooding and, and trying to understand how we make decisions uh, in the federal government. So I, I stuck with it through the years and moving into project planning, uh, leading planning studies and, and that decision-making process, and then moved into headquarters where I was able to work on broader national initiatives and basically the policy of the Corps of Engineers and how we uh, do pursue both projects and, and applying you know, what we do to new problems and new opportunities throughout the nation. And then this past year, I've switched from leading our plan formulation community of practice to leading economics and social science community of practice, which overlaps uh, significantly with the environmental justice and equity topics that are really important to this administration. And how about you, Jessica? Thank you. Um, good morning. Really happy to be here. I've been at the Army Corps for just two years and some change. And um, I sort of came here by way of my thesis research a number of years ago, which looked at whether or not people living behind levees understood the risk of flooding. And when I started getting their responses back and seeing that they weren't aware, I became sort of that much more compelled to intervene and try and find a way to make a difference. And in particular, a couple of responses stood out to me where we asked people if they would evacuate if the levee failed and uh, if there were evacuation order in place. And, and I remember people saying no, and they said, no, I would not evacuate because I have nowhere else to go. And another person said, I wouldn't evacuate because um, I'm in a wheelchair disabled and I have trouble getting around. And those always just stuck with me. And so kind of from that point on, I've wanted to work at the core. So I'm actually living my dream job right now. <laughs> and I feel really grateful uh, to be able to do that. The district flood risk program manager, I also get to um, manage our um, technical assistance programs and particularly as it relates to environmental justice, I've found that over the last couple of years, this is a really great platform to help get some of our technical assistance to some historically marginalized communities. So, um, and then at the moment, I'll just mention, I'm currently on detail at the Institute for Water Resources with the New Horizons program. Um, and my focus there is environmental justice as well. Well, welcome, and we are really glad you guys are here to talk about environmental justice. So, Maria, can you tell our listeners what is environmental justice? Well, as, as far as I'm aware, there's not, you know, a, a legally binding definition of what environmental justice is. However, um, generally, I would say that envir environmental justice means the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people. And the executive orders through the years have, you know, placed some additional information on that. In the Clinton administration, we had Executive Order 12898, which, you know, really says to identify and address as appropriate disproportionately high and adverse human health or environmental effects 
of our programs, policies, activities on minority populations, low-income populations. Under the Biden administration, I think that you know, that definition is kind of expanding uh, to include more underserved or overburdened populations. To define it in one way, I think is, uh, or at least the way I've discussed it even just now, it is really from that you know, policy perspective and how do we take this idea, this concept that is defined differently or slightly differently between groups, depending upon where you sit and how you view these the populations and the programs, but in general, you know, we're really focused on um, providing that meaningful engagement and, and how, at least for the core, our, our projects and programs affect these underserved populations that may have in the past not had their voices fully heard in our project development process. So sort of beyond the policy, related definitions. Um, Dr. Fayola Jacobs, she's a professor at uh, the University of Minnesota. One of the things she talks about is that environmental justice, in addition to being a, a policy and executive order, is also a movement. And so in the same way that the civil rights movement came out of decades of systemic racism and discrimination that denied people of color and other minority groups the ability to vote, participate in democracy and decision making, education, uh, you know, housing access, in the same way that civil rights came in response to that, the environmental justice movement started around the same time period, and it was in response to the decades of environmental racism that disproportionately put people of color, minority, and other low-income communities in flood-prone areas in near to proximity to um, air pollution or a lack of access to clean water, et cetera. And so it's this movement in attempts to um, reverse some of that. Thank you for that. I'm curious to know, like, how does environmental justice overlap or apply to the work that the Corps of Engineers does? I guess from my perspective, you know, how environmental justice overlaps with, you know, our, our projects and our programs is that you can't really do what we do without considering whether or not we're disproportionately impacting segments of the population, but also you know, whether or not we're providing for engagement in our project development process or in how we develop policy and those types of things. They're just not separable. I mean, to do so would be to exclude a segment of our, our, our population from the work that we do. We're saying, you know, as a, a federal agency, you know, we represent the federal taxpayer. That means we represent everyone. And certainly, you know, there are always trade-offs when we do that, you know, but that's not to say that everybody's voice shouldn't be heard in that process or we shouldn't provide an opportunity for people to participate in, in our projects and programs. And there's a lot of technical work that goes into it once we get down to mm -hmm. specific projects or programs. But overall, I just don't see how we could separate what we do from environmental justice and, and what it really means to the people of the country. Yeah, and I think we can also look at, in addition to the sort of who's bearing some of the impacts and how can we get them more engaged in the decision-making process, it's like if we take a 30,000-foot look, we can say who is receiving the benefits of our programs and are there any segments of population or groups of folks who are consistently being left behind we see that low-income and minority communities, indigenous communities are disproportionately living in flood-prone areas, and they have less resources, both financial and political power, to manage or mitigate that risk. And so, obviously, that implicates more than the Corps of Engineers. That's not a problem that we can solve on our own. It's kind of 
the federal government and all of our local and state partners. Um, but it is something, you know, it is at the nexus of things like flood risk management and environmental justice, seeing who is who is exposed, who is at risk, and who's getting the benefits of our programs. Can you share a little bit more about how the Corps is actually addressing environmental justice? Like, how, how are we doing it? Um, you're providing, like, great information to our listeners, but what if someone's, like, new to this, and they're just like, well, how do we even do it? Maria, do you want to you take a stab at that one? I'm going to talk about it mostly from project planning, but really anytime we take an action or we're contemplating taking an action, I would say we follow like the similar broad scale big picture steps, right? Where we want to, you know, first of all, you know, identify if there are environmental justice populations within the area that may be impacted or even, you know, thinking beyond the geographic area where the effects may be national, right? So generally you think about a project on the ground, you think about the people in the immediate vicinity of the project, but it may also affect other people beyond those within the geographic area. So we have to think both on the small scale and on the large scale. Acknowledging and identifying that the populations of interest are there is very important. In doing that, then we can uh, really work through having a, a way to meaningfully involve and engage people in our project development process or in our decision-making processes. Uh, that may mean that we need to provide materials or translation into for non-native English speakers who may not understand English as, as well as uh, or enough to, to understand what we're talking about, right? We need to use plain language, not use a bunch of engineering jargon um, or technical jargon, uh, terminology that's not familiar to people, or access, having public transportation access to our meetings, those types of things that are important uh, in order to make our work accessible on behalf of the taxpayers. And then um, as we're evaluating our alternatives, you, we really want to focus on you know, where the positive and negative effects of any alternative is and, and who's bearing the negative and positive effects or benefiting from or, or bearing the costs of those effects so that we could determine if it's, you know, disproportionate or if it is rather proportionate or generally similar across the, the population. In general, I think those three big picture aspects are how we approach it. Again, there's just so much nuance in actually doing those evaluations and we are trying to expand our, our tool base to be able to do that, you know, looking at the distribution of benefits and costs, for example, in a visual way, right? Being able to produce that on maps so people can see generally where they are relative to, say, reducing the flood risk, those types of things. I think as we work through that, you know, it's not to say that the agency does it always perfectly. So. As an example, we're preparing for this podcast and we recognize we have basically two white women in fairly senior positions in our agency talking about environmental justice. We have to look around and say, well, even in our podcast, maybe we're not the who's most representative. And yeah, who's at the table? And, and can we bring in people uh, uh, to fill that gap into the future? You know, that may be having more podcasts, but it also may be just thinking about who is engaged in the conversation at the policy and, and the broader scale. So you talked a little bit about making sure that we're involving all parties in the discussion. And, you know, I think we all can agree that the court probably can do better at ensuring that we're including all potentially affected parties 
um, or interested parties into project development. What are some ways that that we as a core can you know make sure that we're involving all potentially affected parties? Um, so we do have some tools, right? Our at least in our planning studies and projects, we have a public process, which is which is required. I would argue that we could um, allocate more funding to the stakeholder outreach component of it. But I also believe that, you know, in our guidance, we're asked to create like a public engagement plan or a communications plan. And my understanding in the limited time I've been here is that we don't always complete those. And so we could we could actually complete those plans and ensure that they um, include strategies that will identify and connect with some of the most historically marginalized groups or other uh, populations that um, might have a diff more difficult time getting to the table. We can work with our public involvement specialists in the CPCX. There's definitely a lot of expertise at the core. Jerrica Richardson has been leading up um, an environmental justice working group within that, I believe. There's a risk communication group, but in any case, so there's a lot of tools out there for us to do this. Um, but I think we also need to sort of engage early and often. And what I've observed compared to what I understand the best practices are is that by the time we engage the public, sometimes we actually are fairly far down the line in our thinking about what project alternatives we might be considering. And so they're not really having the opportunity to shape the future and we're not having the opportunity to learn from them, right? And um, I think that we, and not just us, the Army Corps, but I think a lot of folks in the profession, we sort of put technical expertise on a pedestal above all expertise. And I think that local knowledge and local expertise is huge. And so if we can connect with communities ahead of time, understand their perspectives, their needs, engage them during the planning process when we set our planning objectives, the POOPS process. I think th that's gonna be the way that we engage communities and end up with more equitable outcomes. You know, like we recognize that the four of us on the phone right now, we can't wave a magic wand and get rid of a benefit cost analysis policy. And we also can't change like, you know, decades of, of historical um, policies and laws, but we can do more to engage people in the decision-making process. And then we can also do more to hire uh, more broadly from a more diverse and representative applicant pool so that voices are at the table, not just in our public meetings, but they're on the design teams, the project teams, et cetera. Thank you for talking more about, you know, the full range of benefits and, you know, I, I think that there's more that we can do and I'm happy to see that the core is is working to include some of these additional benefits. As we have talked today, we know that there are some barriers to advancing environmental justice um, within the core and really even across the federal government. Um, so can you talk a little bit, Jessica, about what are some of those barriers and maybe how we can mitigate some of those? Sure, and I'll, I'll just talk to two points and they, some may be less popular than others, but <laughs> from my experience. So I guess one I'll say is because of sort of historical policy and practice, uh, historical racism, redlining, things like that, inequity is sort of baked into the systems that we operate in today and the programs that we use. And because of that, the benefit cost analysis ends up being a barrier toward more equitable delivery of our programs. So for example, we know that uh, a lot of our decision-making, not all of it, but a lot of it relies on damages avoided and tied to property value. But if you are a Native American tribe 
and over the decades and centuries have had your land taken away, then you have very little sort of property to have accrued property value. And that's going to sort of put you on the, the less uh, positive end of the benefit cost analysis or similar if you are of African-American descent and your family and their family before was denied the opportunity to buy housing and accrue wealth in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, et cetera, then uh, you might either live in lower value property or um, you might be renting or whatnot. And so those issues then are tied into the benefit cost analysis that we use today. So I think that um, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, like the four of us on the phone can't wave the magic wand and go um, to make that aspect go away, but that uh, we can at least be aware of kind of the the history um, that takes that takes place. And then another topic I would say is around representation. I think that our workforce at the Corps of Engineers um, is not does not exactly look like the communities that we serve, and in particular that we may not reflect the marginalized populations in the communities we serve, so people with disabilities, people from other minority uh, groups or LGBTQ community. And it's really important to have lived experience on the teams and of people who are designing, who are making decisions, et cetera, to make sure that we're not leaving groups behind and make sure that we're considering their needs in our projects and programs as we go forward. And so I think we have lots of opportunities there. I know there's a lot of groups and subgroups at the core that are already working on um, more uh, representative hiring, which is fabulous. And I mean, even just as individuals, if your um, district puts out a job announcement, go ahead and share it on LinkedIn and share it with um, a very broad network of folks um, that you may have. And, you know, I think that there's, there's lots of opportunities there, but. I'll just stop with a couple of those barriers. So I, I would say that benefit cost analysis is, uh, is a tool and how we've used it in the past may as like the decider when there are non-monetary effects that impact our communities that we're working in and with. I mean, I, I agree that benefit cost analysis, uh, it can be a challenge, especially with lower value infrastructure, especially in flood, I would take it a step further and actually say the benefit cost analysis and the measurements are, you know, from a science standpoint, it is a sound approach to the work. But benefit cost analysis is a tool in the toolbox. And by treating it as the only tool, you end up in this situation where maybe you're not able to account for everything or at least all of the meaningful things that go into a decision. So. I think overcoming uh, the, the reliance on uh, benefit cost analysis as the only way uh, is very important uh, to us. But I do see that in what we're what, what we're um, getting both out of the assistant secretary's office and and even the administration and their willingness to consider projects where the benefit cost analysis would say probably shouldn't pursue the project, but for which there are other reasons to pursue a project. So. You know, maybe the historic nature of the community, uh, that's where, you know, communities like Princeville or, or Selma, Alabama, or, you know, in the Tulsa, West Tulsa levy system where, you know, the benefit cost analysis is low, but the potential life loss may be higher, you know, those types of things where they, we're getting some hints that maybe the benefit cost analysis won't be the only tool in that decision-making process. I would say the one, and I think we've heard it from inside and outside the agency is just affordability. 
especially if you have uh, low-income communities or you have rural communities where the tax base is lower, you end up having an affordability issue for the types of infrastructure or the types of projects if it's non-structural or um, that, that the Corps of Engineers would pursue. And we have some programs and projects and maybe if we get a little time later, we can talk about how we could overcome some of that. But I just, I look out and you know, just, every time I hear it, so who's gonna pay for it? You know, we can't afford it. The federal government has limited money too, going directly to what's appropriated for the Corps of Engineers to pursue these projects. That just leaves affordability as a big kind of question out there. So I, I would put that as actually my number one because you got to first afford the study, then you have to afford the project if you can get to that point. And it could be very prohibitive for our communities. So Maria, could you share a little bit more about our existing programs that the Corps of Engineers does that help um, un unrepresented communities? Well, all of our communities have opportunities to, to access these programs, but I think especially important to under represented and environmental justice uh, communities is probably the floodplain management services program. So that allows us to provide flood, flood and floodplain information to communities at 100% federal cost. It is not a project planning type of a program. It's, we can do some, you know, high level planning in it, you know, some, as long as it's not too detailed, we try to use existing information, but it's a way to access our technical expertise without committing to a big project. And it can help communities put, say, their flooding problem in context to, you know, housing or other things, right? So if you have the flood information, then you can say, well, how big is that problem relative to all these other services that you know, I need to provide within my community? I think we have the Planning Assistance to States program which is a cost share program, uh, but uh, we could, that's another way also to access our technical capability. And we can do more detailed information under that program when compared to floodplain management services. We have the continuing authorities program, which is uh, generally smaller projects. And that program doesn't just deal with flooding. It can deal with aquatic ecosystem restoration. We have authorities for that. Uh, as well as flooding and coastal storm, smaller projects, um, emergency stream break restoration. The cost of those projects are generally less, and the, there's a federal limit and a local, you know, there is a cost share, but again, smaller projects uh, because of the federal cap on how much we can spend. I guess uh, if I had to name a fourth one off the top of my head, I would pick the tribal partnership program. It's a great program to uh, work with the tribal nations uh, and their water resources development. And under that program, there are, there are opportunities for reduced cost share. So again, a great opportunity to work uh, and to provide our technical capabilities to support the tribal nations and their, their pursuit of um, uh, projects um, and actually can get to projects under that program. So I think, I think those probably four off the top of my head that are you know, accessible, more affordable and certainly would uh, grant our expertise to local communities and their own planning services as well. And if I could round that out with a couple additional thoughts of ways that I think that we can provide more benefits 
this isn't, you know, exactly related to our planning project, for example, but there's the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. And so, for example, in the San Francisco district right now, we're working on getting remains and other funerary objects and sacred objects back to the tribes. And these may have been excavated during construction projects for which we were responsible. And so I think that's really part about rebuilding some relationships, rebuilding trust and, you know, getting getting important um, cultural artifacts back to the tribes. And then another thought too is um, a lot of the um, district flood risk program managers, like people with my role or Silver Jackets coordinators, we have a handful of sort of miscellaneous coordination accounts that allow us to do outreach and build relationships. And um, what we've been doing in the San Francisco district is really prioritizing our outreach funds to go build relationships with some of the underrepresented communities in our area. And then that allows us not only a better relationship for should we have a project that interfaces with them at some point, but it really gives us, you know, then when resources come our way or new grants come our way, um, we already have those relationships and we can get them to the communities that need them. And then that also just allows us to like bring other agencies to the table that might have an authority that could help or meet a need in a disadvantaged community that we might not be able to. So I think we can really use our outreach and coordination funding to, to target some disadvantaged communities. That's a great point, Jessica, because, you know, even at the project or any of the programs I mentioned, our technical services, is, it's communities know we have those capabilities, which generally they learn through outreach, uh, then they can come and ask us for those services. So we're not out there, you know, like a private business trying to solicit work for ourselves, but we do need to make available or, or make our services and what, what we can do available so that people can and communities can decide, yes, we do want that service. None of our technical services or projects happen without a community coming to us and say, I have a problem. The core isn't out there fishing for problems. Great point <laughs> about the outreach and the need to actually bring in those communities uh, before we even think about these uh, projects. Now, I always get excited when I when I hear about increased focus on outreach and building relationships, because at the root of it, uh, everything the Corps of Engineers does is with partners, right? Um, you know, it's very important that we build those relationships um, proactively. So then when opportunities come forward, we can we can definitely have the relationship in place and move projects forward faster, right? So speaking of projects, I would like to talk a little bit about examples of success. I know that there's always opportunities to learn and grow from the work that others have done. And so thinking of the work that the Corps has done um, and even our federal partners, are there some examples of success within environmental justice? I think that you know, this, this question is a little bit challenging, not because you know, we're not considering environmental justice, but because the way in which we've historically applied environmental justice in the agency, right, looking for these disproportionate, adverse, and high impacts, and then engaging populations. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's a little bit more challenging than to say, well, is the Corps of Engineers taking on projects where underserved or overburdened populations have benefited and done that sometimes in spite of the benefit cost analysis, right? you know, because of the, you know, things we've talked about already on this podcast. And, and I think there are some cases. So we have places like Selma, Alabama, where 
you know, the historic nature of that community and its, its importance within the civil rights movement clearly present the nation with a reason to, to consider a project there. I would say almost in spite of the benefit cost analysis, if it, it, it may turn out positive, may not have, but, you know, at, at least uh, considering the project regardless. I think we have places like Princeville where, you know, President Clinton had signed an executive order after a, a storm event there that had flooded the town and uh, that community, I would say, is a benefit cost analysis, I think did work out for that community. But the truth is, you know, that study was pursued for a while uh, because of the impetus placed on it by uh, the executive order, but also the historic nature being first black settlement in that area. So I, I think, you know, we've, we've looked through projects in that, that realm and you do see, uh, I would say, some successes. I think historically for the agency, it's been challenging to overcome some of those hurdles, but we are seeing it happen more often. And I, I do think that, you know, moving forward, we will continue to see uh, improvement in, in considering these under considering underserved populations, especially in the face of climate change and the intersect of how we know uh, the communities are going to be affected by climate change, right? You know, so you put all that together, you know, maybe we're not all there yet, as uh, I think has been alluded to, but we are making progress. And I think there are projects out there that represent that, that uh, prioritization within the agency. So, yes, I agree. The more that we work to incorporate all of this into the way we do business, um, the more we can make advancements with environmental justice. I do want to get into one of our final questions because we're nearing the end of our time together. I think it's important for our listeners to understand what activities you two are involved in that really could help support or uh, help them learn more about environmental justice. So um, starting with you, Jessica. Absolutely. So the first thing that I'll mention, and I said it earlier on, which is I'm currently at Institute for Water Resources on 120 day detail related to environmental justice. And what I'm working on there is creating a resource library and then a series of summaries and abstracts so that when we start talking about these things like environmental justice and flooding or environmental um, justice or equity and our navigation programs, like where can we go to learn more and to learn more? How can we consider it? What tools are available? So I'm creating a resource library with those resources. So now we can say, here's where you can go to learn some more information. And then something else that um, is happening at the district is in partnership and supported by the National Flood Risk Management Program, we are in the middle of a year long monthly webinar series called Bridging the Equity Gap, Flood Resilience for the Whole Community. And that is um, a monthly series um, getting a pretty broad representation of panelists and presenters to touch on different aspects of this problem, whether it's historical challenges or whether it's equity considerations and relocations or whether it's um, last month was disability justice and flood risk management. So I strongly encourage everyone to um, attend those and we also have them recorded. So if you miss any of the four that we've had so far, can, we can get you the website for that. Currently, it should be linked on the National Flood Risk Management Program website. And then otherwise, you can check out the San Francisco District YouTube channel, which has that series on there. Uh, yeah, I'll stop, I'll stop there with, <laughs> with those examples. So Jessica gave, I think, some really good examples of what she's working on to help the agency. I, I think 
part of what I've been doing is working with others, including Susan Durden and Dr. Tyson Vaughn and, and Hal Cardwell and others to, to not only think about what we are doing internally, but especially with Susan, what other agencies are doing. So, you know, she's been doing a lot of connecting for me and not just for me, really for the agency so that we can also work with what other agencies are um, doing. So just as an example, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, has office hours for their tool, uh, EJ Screen, that people can attend to get support on how to use the tool, which helps us to identify then the environmental justice populations, right? So I think trying to bring in all of that, not only for our um, district level people who are on the ground doing the work, but also for our leadership and trying to make those connections uh, to bring the federal family uh, and the federal agencies all together. I think I've had a hand historically in a lot of our other social effects, which I think aligns now with also uh, the expanding role of our community practice to be economics and social sciences, uh, so that we're not forgetting, uh, you know, anthropology and geography and sociology, these, these fields that actually bring a lot of expertise. So trying to expand our capability and capacity through that community. So that, that does include kind of being the lead or the head without doing any of the actual labor <laughs> of developing uh, training courses and, and those types of uh, proposals that we're really just trying to flush out, you know, how do we increase our capability in the agency? So I guess to go with that, I would just say that you know, we should look internally, like Desco putting tool together, but there are a lot that the other agencies, I gave the EPA example. NOAA also has a webinar series on climate inequity. I've attended several of those myself. They're very fascinating, great information. Uh, they're available on their library. So you, you can look around to the other agencies as well for an opportunity to learn more about the topic and, and what other agencies are doing, but also contemplating how do we take that same information, apply it to our work. It's a little bit harder. It's been, you know, a career trying to figure that out, or it feels like a, a career, but there are a lot of tools and experts out there. And then finally, I think Jessica had mentioned that we do have experts not only in communication, but we have uh, people in our district, uh, colleagues that are very capable and have a lot of experience. So. Dr. Martin out of Chicago was recently on assignment to the Department of Defense working on environmental justice. I think you know, she's a, a resource we can use. Uh, you know, Jessica, who's on the phone, I think I mentioned Hal, Dr. Cardwell, and uh, Dr. Vaughn, and, and Susan Durden. You know, they all um, kind of represent a collective body of knowledge and can certainly help our district teams and our partners to you know, make sure that we are including some of our own agency experts in our evaluation, whether it's through projects or if it's through, you know, NEPA, where we do implement a lot of the environmental justice requirements. They're a great resource. Um, we're partnering with other of our, like, state and local partners, kind of riding on their coattails who are a bit further in this. So, for example, the San Francisco Bay Development Commission, they passed an environmental justice policy and then hired an environmental justice manager a couple of years ago, and they found a way already to integrate environmental justice into all of their work. 
And um, so we occasionally talk with them and just learn how they do things and see where we can take lessons from their experience. And then you know, we also work a lot with the state of California, the Department of Water Resources, and um, they have a program related to, um, you know, helping overburdened underrepresented communities get access to um, grant programs, know that they're out there and help them, you know, fill out those grants. And so we've been strategically partnering with them and participating in their workshops. Um, we're thinking together about sort of a statewide look at equity considerations. So in any case, I guess I would encourage my colleagues out there to say, I know, you know, if, if something is new to you or your district, that's okay. I'm guessing there are other organizations that you work with or partner with, and they would be great to connect with over these topics, you know, and none of us can solve this alone or within our authority only. So um, it's great to connect with others who, who can. We have really enjoyed spending time with you today uh, talking about environmental justice. We appreciate your time and really, again, thank you uh, for joining us for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from? Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.